0: Hey, everybody, and welcome back to X's for Podcast. I'm Nico, and you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at NicoAction, that's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And today, we have books spanning the breadth of the Marvel timeline, whether it's a retro throwback book like Kieran Gillen and Asad Ribick's Eternals Number 1, paying tribute to Jack Kirby, as well as Neil Gaiman, John Romita Jr., and all of the great minds that have worked on Eternals before them. God Loves Man Kills Extended Edition, where Chris Claremont and Brett Anderson's landmark graphic novel is re-released with additional pages by by the original creators or it's marauders number 17 which has been a landmark series in the Hawks pox era touching back on 40 years of continuity first up marauders number 17 sees josh arturo drew and evelyn come together to talk about this incredible dynamic group of women and the ways they retain their own agencies in this story the team takes a deep look into the characters where they've been and where they're going and we hope you guys enjoy
1: We're here today talking about Marauders 17, written by Jerry Duggan, art by Matteo Lully, colors by Edgar Delgado, and letters by VCs Corey Pettit. A lot of intriguing threads from before X of Swords start to tie together as we witness Emma and Callisto interrogating Shinobi Shaw before Kate's resurrection. We get Callisto seeking out her Kaishakunin for her turn in the crucible, Emma's grand opening of her new island that Magneto got her in his giant size issue, Kate and Lockheed visiting the family that rescued him in Madripoor. Callisto versus Storm in the Crucible and Kate and Emma beginning to deal with those shitty hellfire kids from Verendi. (laughs) (laughs) Woo! With me today, I've got Drew. Drew, introduce yourself and tell us where we can find you.
2: Hey, I'm Drew. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter at Drucifer3. Evelyn, where can they find you?
3: Hey, I'm Evelyn, the Comic Canary. You can find me at Comic underscore Canary on Twitter and Instagram. We also have Arturo. Where can we find you?
4: Ahoy, Mutants. Uh am Arturo. You can find me at Mr. Toybox on Twitter and Instagram. And leading us today, we have Josh.
1: Ahoy! I'm Josh. You can find me me as usual at asleep at the wheel w-e-i-l on twitter and asleep at the wheel.com but also these days you can find me at wheel for the number four u.s senate on twitter and wheel for the number four u.s senate.com as I am an official candidate running for the Democratic nomination for U.S. Senate in 2022.
5: Woo! Woo Somebody's got
4: to take, somebody's got to get rid of Marco Rubio. Why not? Hashtag
1: retire Rubio. All right, now back to Marauders. This was an issue. Uh, this is the type of issue that like gets me really excited. We talk a lot on here about uh, comics that feel like they weren't worth our $4. Like we didn't get a full $4 worth of comic on here. This was the opposite. This had so much bang for our buck. I you know, tried to kind of get at that just in the opening. There were so many different things Duggan was doing here. I loved the pace. And, you know, you could tell that this was a little bit of a writer trying to get back on pace from crossover fatigue. But the fact that the opening scene or the the opening part of Callisto and Storm's story with her asking her to join in the Crucible and then the fight actually happening in the same issue is fantastic because I think too many other writers would have dragged that out over two to three issues. And just having the, the pace of this with a lot of different threads, a lot of different characters all moving forward. Forward, was very welcome from uh, some of the kind of play setting, reorganizing, slow down that we've gotten in other issues recently. Let's start with Drew. What do you think, Drew?
2: Yeah, like you said, we're going back to pre-X of Swords. So when this happens, Kate hasn't been resurrected yet. And it's just basically going back to Emma reading Lockheed's mind and then the aftermath of that. So we soon go into like Shinobi and Christian and kind of what Shinobi knows about the whole entire situation.
1: Yes. And I love Shinobi and Arturo. Arturo, I feel like this is your beat i see christian and shinobi sitting in the bar and christian flirting with him knowing that like iceman's back at home and for some reason i think of you what were your thoughts on this
4: i mean first off i want to i want to back up and just say i'm really glad that emma of all the characters is cutting to the heart of the matter with what's going on with shinobi and also with christian because remember there was this like whole question about if christian was betraying emma with sebastian shaw like if they had been were doing something underhanded and
1: i never thought Questions her uh games bond.
4: Right. I exactly. And, and and I never thought that he was actively betraying her. I thought maybe he was getting played against her. This just reassured me that no, Emma knows what's up all across the board, and she's the one that's like really moving all the pieces in the court, you know, where she wants them.
1: Emma is boss bitch in charge.
4: Emma is, god damn it. Jerry Dugan writes such an incredible Emma Frost. I love this Emma Frost with my entire heart and soul. But to go back to your question with Shinobi yeah man i'm all for this little gay flirtation ship. i don't want to ship them and make them you know a boring married couple not at all I, i'm glad that that, that christian and ice man presumably still have their little thing going on and that's not slowing down christian from having you know some kind of relations with shinobi i'm all for it it's like this is the Krokoan era everybody should be you know open and free and doing their things and yeah i've had a crush on shinobi shaw since the 90s when he was Would have hot, sexy time parties with Trevor Fitzroy and have scantily clad models all around them. Yeah, for for a young adolescent trying to figure out his own queerness or whatever, Shinobi was definitely like one of those characters that was a treat.
1: Yes, and now we we mentioned that Emma's boss bitch in charge here, and Arturo talked about how great Duggan does of writing her. I like I have it here in my notes. Uh, Duggan does a great job of giving so many different female characters their own unique agency and. uh, especially in this issue, having them interact with each other in ways that never have anything to do with men, except when they're fucking up misogynists. And this is like the ultimate Bechtel test book. I mean, in this single issue, we have Emma, Callisto, Storm, and Kate all acting on their own agency with nothing to do with men or the machinations of men or, or their bullshit and really running shit and keeping things moving forward. Evelyn, tell me how this book, you know, as as a fellow boss bitch in charge. How does this book come across to you with all of these? Like am I the only? Tell me if I'm wrong cuz like I'm a guy reading women thinking that it's good. Tell me if it's not good.
3: Oh, no, this is fantastic. Like who won who runs the world, girls. Like absolutely. freaking lootly. Just everything about this, it's it just makes my heart sore because we have these four different women that all have their unique personalities, wants, ambitions, and they are just so Oh, they're written so well where they don't have to like be catty to each other to express their feelings and their own ambitions where they're like I may disagree with you but I still respect you and where we have like especially Callisto and Storm being like oh, starting to get a little bit more I guess amiable is the better word for it like that's just so fantastic to see their relationship evolve and seeing how Emma is such like a maternal role to kate that she's like i'm gonna go through heaven and hell to like make sure that this is put right and we see this side of emma that we don't see often which is her actually being openly concerned she's usually more subtle she's usually a bit more reserved so seeing this seeing her in black like just visually seeing her in black was just oh it was so fantastic i just go on and on <laughs> i got like thrown it, off it, by that wait. at
1: first. I thought it was um, Ilyana at first. And then, you know, with the white yeah. eyes and the way it was drawn, it took me a minute to go back. I had to, like, go back and realize, like, oh, she's reclaiming. Like, she's the black. She's gonna no, be the black No, 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 again. no.
4: That was, no, you guys, she was wearing black because that, this was, mourning. that, that was while she was in mourning for Kate. Oh, this
1: was from the funeral. Was from yeah. the, this was her funeral outfit. I'm stupid. Outfit.
4: That was her a funeral dummy. outfit. So that was really cool that it kind of, like, helped place us in that time. And and and, yes. and establish what was going on with Shinobi and and whatnot. No, can and we, then she wears the we white later. Can we just get into the Callisto and Storm of it all? Because I can't, you guys. Uh. That is a ship that I have shipped for a very long time, and I know I'm not alone there. They they have always had this rivalry, but beyond the rivalry, there's always been this high level of respect and admiration and sexual tension that you could cut with a butter knife like just they have this electricity and I love seeing their relationship continue to evolve. I love that that Callisto is part of the the Hellfire Court.
1: Okay, quick quick roundtable. Who is your favorite Storm Paramore? We've got Kalisto, we've got Yukio, we've got Forge, we've got Logan, we've got T'Challa.
3: It's I so s- hard to pick.
1: I say I like I like her and Logan
2: together. Um it's it's different, I think. Like it's kind of unexpected. It doesn't put Logan with someone who you would think like that for him to be with it's just a little bit more interesting I think
4: um, I like them as I mean not to be crass but kind of like fuck buddies I love that they you know what I mean like they love each other I like other. her they're, going down they're, and throwing like, it with Logan yeah they're like best friends or whatever but yeah sometimes they get a little you know they fun together and I, and I love that for them you know but to me it's almost like Storm deserves somebody that she would be like the center of their universe and I think uh, Cyclops and Gene. Gray are the center of Wolverine's universe really, so... I don't know I'm I'm a toss up between Yuko and Callisto I, I always kind of love that and I don't know don't don't shame me don't cancel me but I did love Storm and Forge together back in the in the 90s I always so
1: that's what I was gonna say I love Forge worships her and I yep. feel like of the other ones Forge is the only one that like would absolutely lay down like he would lay down and let her walk on top of him like he worships her and would do anything for her in a way that she Deserves, but I don't think that he gives her that he doesn't challenge her in a way the other four do. Right.
3: I mean, for me, it really depends on what universe we're talking about. In the main comic universe, I think I definitely Storm and T'Challa. Like, I think that they are just they're meant for each other, even with all of their ups and downs. That being said, I recently just finished watching um or rewatching X-Men Evolution, and I was reading a Lot of fanfiction in there, and my fanfiction heart definitely goes out to like Logan and Storm, at least in that universe. <laughs>
4: yeah I mean I you know what Evelyn you bring up a really good point like of all of those options I think T'Challa is the one most worthy of Storm if that makes sense like there is something like just beautiful and right about them being paired I don't know sometimes like I'm I'm very uh mutants should be with mutants (laughs) but I know that that sounds (laughs) problematic even as I'm saying it so you know I I don't want to I don't want to discriminate against the flat scans I think it's good to have you know some some mixing and now that all the property rights are all under the right, uh, you know, ownership again, yeah, maybe we will see a rekindling of Storm and T'Challa.
1: the the T'Challa thing feels so nice because, you know, we hold Storm in such high regard that, you know, we look around like the Marvel Universe 616 world. We look at 616 Earth and we're like, no, you know what? Like the only person who is maybe even a little worthy of Storm is you know, the king of a sovereign nation who's also one of the you know, greatest technological and strategic minds the planet has to offer who is also one of the greatest warriors who is also, like, it has to be all of that right. in order to be like okay like he might be worthy of her yeah. well
3: remember she is a goddess she she is a goddess and she deserves so much and so personally I would be open to a new love interest down the line and see who else they could possibly pair her with or maybe even a new character and that to me I feel could be really interesting with Storm remember yeah.
4: the five minutes back when we were all kind of shipping her with death who yes! met for all of three minutes man exo swords was a really trippy event one thing i wanted to say
2: going back to storm and black panther is that like I I really don't see them ever getting back together though. With the events with between them that happened in like AVX, oh my god, that just like pissed me off so freaking much that I like after that moment I'm like I'm like I don't want to see them together ever again. What he did to her in that event, I was just like like I'm like that's it's fucking bullshit. Well, I think that is I think that was kind of
1: necessary.
4: I think that's the right reaction of all of AVX. I mean AVX AVX hurt a lot of us. (laughs) AVX left a lot of us angry for a lot of justifiable reasons to be honest. So yeah, Yeah, that was like my big,
2: my big break with it kind of on an editorial note like just thinking is well black panther is a black character and storm's a black character so let's just marry them you know and it's just kind of like they're not even in the same world like they don't you know what i mean like she's an x-men he's uh like wakandan like- well that
4: i mean and that that's 100 percent valid like that's that was part of the thinking behind it i mean it, it's it's the most prominent black woman character in marvel and the most prominent black man so yeah i mean it seems a little trite or whatever but my problem with their whole relationship was it always felt to me kind of like a disservice to Storm like it helped elevate Black Panther but to me it was like Storm does I mean she's she's just she should be her own character she doesn't need to be you know the Sue to read exactly yeah like it's Storm for Christ's sake
1: well I, I think that you know to Drew's line about you know pairing the black characters together the reason why it might feel a little that way isn't necessarily because of you know like lazy writers now, I think it goes back to, you know, lazy writers, 70s and 80s. And the fact that we don't have enough good, you know, like high level esteemed major players, top tier black characters. So that, you know, if you want to pair them off romantically or find a, a match for them at their level, like there, there isn't a lot. You have to either, you know, put them with a different race character, which there's nothing wrong with. But, you know, do you also like, should you be like, should you be saying that like, you know, like Storm's only love interest are white guys? Um, like it's the the universe isn't wasn't fleshed out fully enough for, you know, the first 30 years in terms of diversity you know, diversity meant that you know every different race or whatever had one character, not that they really? were represented fully. Well,
4: well look, and, and I want to I want to counter that with you know Storm was the first and most prominent black character in Marvel for many, many, many years, and it took a very long time to introduce the second black X Men, and that was Bishop. And you know, the, to the other side of of this argument, I'm glad twenty that years in between I'm, those two. I'm, I'm glad that they weren't shipped right away, you know, as a couple, because that to me would have felt like okay um now, go, back, that, that seems lazy. Go,
1: go back and read uncanny uh 290 through 305 um that was danced around uh quite quite a bit
4: for sure, uh, quite no, a no, bit. For sure, there's there's definitely chemistry there, but I I it was always a little more complex, made by the fact that Storm was in Bishop's eyes a a living legend, right? So there was just more complexity to it. I'm gl- I, I'm glad it wasn't just like they're a couple, you know?
1: No, and I am super glad, even though it was so ham fisted, the fact that like Storm may or may not be Bishop's grandmother, like, while dumb. Also gave us the blessing of we never have to see them ship together ever again. I did not remember that, but I now
4: I, as yeah, I think you're right. I, so wait, so Bishop comes from the lineage of Storm and isn't he also Gateway's descendant?
1: Oh, there's a, I, it's so poorly um, done, oh. but y- yeah, there's some. Yeah, not a good look. I, I'm Marble. trying to think not, of which one it Marble. is where we see Kid Bishop with his grandma who's alluded to as being Storm and it's a thing I can see the panels in my head but I don't remember what comic it's from
4: we have veered wildly off topic listeners if you're still with us <laughs> we
1: should you probably go, just,
4: back you can go back
1: and take like the last 12 minutes and you know <laughs> cut like a tight two out of them or something Yeah.
3: Um, well something that I did want to bring up something that I've talked about extensively in different podcasts and different comic panels is about diversity and fandom and something that people don't realize the first interracial kiss in comic books was 1960 75 like comic books tv media they are so afraid who of was diversity it? who was
4: the first interracial kiss in comics i don't know this
3: it was kill raven who kissed a black man and then it wasn't until like two years later when iron fist and misty knight kissed that was like the first superhero interracial kiss in 1977 so so- Danny and
1: misty was gonna be my guess
3: I yeah that was this. the second
0: hey everybody nico here with a bit of a drop-in now it's really funny the last couple of minutes of conversation because. because. ...because they tie into a number of really exciting projects we have coming out here at X's for Podcast. Number one, over on our new YouTube channel, you're going to be able to find awesome character spotlights... ...like one on Bishop that's going to be coming out soon... ...where we're going to make a lot of this confusing characterization over the last three decades... ...come together and coalesce into something a little bit easier to understand. And number two, we're actually going to be talking about Killraven, or at least I will, over on my YouTube channel. Killraven is actually a favorite of mine, and talking about Don McGregor advancing the realities of the comic universe by giving Marvel their first interracial kiss is definitely something worth talking about. So if you guys are enjoying what you're hearing you're going to want to check out the YouTube channel over at X's for podcast on YouTube where you're going to be able to check out even more great content just like this.
3: Just media especially back in the 60s and 70s was so afraid of diversity which Marvel did challenge but that does make me question back to what we were saying about like that tokenism of Storm and T'Challa where they have made it very dynamic now in the modern lens but back then not the best look
4: I think the paramour that made the most impact on Storm is the one that inspired her to get a complete makeover show up with a mohawk l- dressed in leather super butch like Yukio was I think the great love of Storm's life to be honest and then I think her affection and and interest in Callisto and all that sexual tension is a byproduct of the impact Yukio had on Storm that's that's my headcanon forever is like yukio was her her lover
1: i do love how every time we get like through the years a, a, a yukio reemergence or a yukio storm scene like she's always storm is always drawn as being like stopped and shook for a moment when she first yeah. sees yukio yeah. like every writer artist pair always like takes an extra panel on that one so we can get it
4: <laughs> can we talk a little bit about what's going on at emma's fabulous new island
1: I was just going to say, we need to talk about some things. There's so many things that happened in Marauder 17. So one thing that I thought was interesting about like this kind of section here is that at
2: the end, like kind of the line that like got me was when Callisto says that now that if you want your powers back, you got to bring someone back to the dance, like you got to bring someone to the dance, which kind of is like a subtle like wink, I think to X of Swords when Storm was dancing with death. You know, it's kind of like Storm is becoming the apocalypse in this situation. She's becoming death because she has to kill Callisto also referring back to that issue of Marauders 14 and like that X of Swords issue where she's dancing with death on the cover
1: yeah I, I like how we're getting some building off of X of Swords mm-hmm. that we're seeing you know the repercussions and how Krakoa is flexible and can adapt you know now we're you know we still have the Crucible and while there was this amazing kind of power to it of them having to go through Apocalypse now we have Silver Samurai running it which is fun and you can bring your own Kaishakunin and And which is going to make for a lot of really interesting dynamics as people get to choose the person that's going to... Take them there, uh, just like we see in this issue. You know, like there, there was no one else that Callisto sees as worthy of killing her than Storm.
4: How great though was the little scene when it looked like Fenris was volunteering for the for the job, and uh, and my incest Callisto, twins Callisto says, "No, if those races come down here, I'll end up in the pit instead of the Arbor Mike. I love. Yes, that. That
3: oh, was so great. I love a great to hate line. them.
4: It's like I'm
1: here. And to I love to hate them, though they are they are characters that I love to hate i don't want a lot of them but every so often i just need you to drop them in for a panel so i can be like fuck them and
4: i've been hungry I've been hungry for some Fenris content since they were because they're what they're the Black uh, Knights. I think they're on the court. They're part of Hellfire oh god, trading. they are.
1: That's right. We they're saw part them.
4: of trading, yeah. And I'm been like, where the hell are those horrible twins? Yeah, Ugh. I love to hate them.
1: When when a mask gives you the shit eye, you know yeah. you're horrible. Yeah.
4: What are you looking at? Two shit bags.
3: <laughs> they're just they're the actual worst. Like they're truly the worst and. I want to see more of them purely to see like their asses handed to them.
1: Yes, they would be a fun character to kill every time you see them like we're getting with Empath and Quentin Choir. Can we take a little
4: moment and just appreciate uh, just changing gears back to uh, one. I love Emma wheeling around Sebastian Shaw and just slowly torturing him is
1: in the, my, the oldest, ricketyest wheelchair she could, she could find.
4: You know, one of those wheels wobbles like a shopping cart. There's some squeaking mm-hmm. happening. Yeah, <laughs> I, it's, just, it's, it's probably my sucks. new favorite kink, but her little swarthy seaman that cares for the island and Jumbo Carnation. Did you guys catch that little flirtation and the little moment the two shared?
3: No.
4: Okay, the captain the, Hello, lad. captain the captain very specifically says "Hello lad."
1: Hello and, lad and gives and- him a little wink. And then Jumbo, Jumbo Carnation Parking. blushes.
4: He's like I, shocked. And then he <gasps> blushes. And as they're walking off panel, the the little captain puts a, his arm I caressingly totally on the yes,
3: head. how did I miss this the first time? Oh my god. Oh my gosh, I'm looking at it right now yeah, and I'm just okay. It I happens. totally did
1: not it's amazing. I'm so I glad missed I missed it. I was too distracted days. by Bishop by sexy bishop with no shirt and the red leather jacket. Yeah, that's um, I wanted
2: to add that too. that. I'm, li- I'm living for this bishop look
1: well i was living for
4: the the all red bishop look and i guess we now know the only way to make that look hotter was to take off his shirt because hot damn bishop has never mm. looked finer
1: this is the one this is yes this is, is, it. It. Yes. <laughs> this this is, is the best look. bishop look we've ever gotten so yep. and the best two, bishop uh, hair the best props. bishop
4: hair too his hair looks so hot yeah yeah
1: Going back a page,
2: what is up with that ship at the top on the when they're first walking onto the island? It's floating in the sky
1: like the Peter Pan. Like, yeah,
2: yeah. Me and my brother were like screaming at each other about this.
4: (laughs) My quick headcanon for that was remember the, the the so the white ship, the one that that Christian drives is like a shape shifting ship, isn't it? Like, can it take on other forms or did I dream that the one that he like drives by playing a piano? So, my quick headcanon for it was this is just the the form that that white white ship is taking right
1: now
2: yeah that okay so i thought it was supposed to be there and it like but he was saying that it looks like it's an editing mistake and that it's supposed to be in the water and i'm like what oh, are, i like, mean
1: that happens sometimes too yeah interesting
4: i
2: also just think it's weird because it, like the coloring on it and just like the it just looks like it was drawn and then like it's not supposed to, like why are the the flag
1: should be white
2: right like and, like
1: lowly meant to erase it and then he didn't and so it got colored and proofed and
2: yeah it just i don't know to me it's just like how it's all one color it's in the sky it just it doesn't really i don't know it's it to me it's weird yeah well and it
1: goes to show there's so many things going on in these scenes like arturo just pointed out like the subtle all these little subtle background things between the island keeper and jumbo carnation you know i on multiple runs i had to stop and get distracted by all of the little puffins Mm -hmm. You know, there's the great facial expressions, you know, Emma kind of going through like whether or not she like, what is she actually feeling like, I got to give him like, I don't know, like what, you know, you've got Sebastian Shaw's look of shock when he sees the giant sentinel tower you've got sexy bishop you've got there's just so much
3: which i wanted to i just wanted to touch on the sentinel tower just real quick which is what a fucking power move that they have taken the sentinel and have turned it into a base now this makes me nervous because i'm like oh no shit's gonna go down because the sentinel brain's gonna turn back on but at the same time i'm like they just took one of their most deadly enemies and turned it into basically a spa and just, mwah, just and i
4: i see that as a nod to uh that new genosha era like when in the ruins of genosha they built like a a basically a monument to magneto but it was built out of like a sentinel parts it was like a sentinel refurbished to look more like magneto you guys remember that do you know what i'm talking about
1: yes mm-hmm. no and, and i think the same thing in um the wolverine and the x-men animated series on his genosha i want to say yes. that yes. used that design as well yeah In X-Men
2: Red, too. Like, in X-Men Red, they use a sentinel and they, like, fly around on it. Yeah. Now,
1: honestly, this is probably just me reading too many um, Highlander novels lately, but it reminded me of scenes from, you know, that always make the immortals nervous in Highlander, you know, in the flashbacks. But when they come to a new kingdom or a place and, you know, they see people's heads on spikes outside, like uh, in ancient times, you know, like showing that enemies or those who tried to overthrow the king or anything like that like that they were beheaded and their head was hung out like in front of the castle you know as a warning to those who would try it next like that you know here emma has this base and she has the head of an enemy like mounted right on side of it for everyone to see when they enter
4: so since this first uh, this island was first introduced in giant size x-men i i know i and i'm sure everybody has had theories about what it is and what it was going to be one of my theories has been that this is going to be like the new frost institute for lack of a better word like it's going to be a a school or whatever
1: a massachusetts academy a
4: massachusetts academy reborn type of thing doing it for the children my other theory was of course and this these two aren't uh mutually exclusive but that this would be the hellfire gala what i did not have on my on my list of guests was that the hellfire gala would be attended by so many damn humans
1: Well, and I think that's what she wanted. Like, it appears now that this is going to be like her embassy. This is going to be like her place where to bring them to her without bringing them to Krakoa to deal with, you know, the world this way.
2: Also, what a power move of going back to that Sentinel. So when this all happens, they're going to all these humans are going to come and they're going to be like, because they're going to see like this weapon Mm -hmm. that they're trying to kill them with is now part of their (laughs) building. You know what I mean? Part of their like, (laughs) literally, (laughs) it's like fuck you, like. Okay. Yes, it's kind
3: of like a warning.
2: That's yeah, that's what I'm that's what I mean. Like,
1: yes, like the Highlander (laughs) thing. That's what I'm saying.
4: So good. It's so good. Cause it was right around this point in the issue where I was like, where the hell where's Kate at? And then I turned the page and well, here she is, Captain Kate Pride. Mm. And let's get into that a little bit. I love seeing her just be such a boss right now. I feel like Kate is being so she just feels so centered. She just feels so sure of herself and so like quietly powerful. You know, like she's not trying to show off. She's just doing her thing.
6: Well, and
2: it's like we've gotten a lot of Kate stuff over the past thirteen issues you know with her death and stuff so it's kind of like yes yeah, she is kind of leading the team but maybe we can focus on like bishop who hasn't really been seen throughout you know Marauders yeah, that there's
1: much. a big cast here and i'm almost okay with you know the fact that they're alluding to storm kind of coming off of this book because there are a lot of other places that storm can be used and there are so many other characters like we're seeing here mm-hmm. uh, like you can't devote a whole issue you can't give like a bishop issue or an iceman issue anymore in this book because there's so many other characters that just need their pages regularly. I'm gonna stop for one second and go back and say that uh Highlander the Captive Soul by Josepha Sherman is a mythos book who is one of my favorite characters from Highlander and that's the one that really made me think about the heads being mounted on the castle and it's a really good book. So if you like Highlander you should go read that. Back to Kitty though. This is also Kitty and madripoor because let's think about Lockheed washed up in a place that Kitty has been to a number of times. madripoor has featured recurringly throughout Kitty's history as a big place for her. And so you know the fact that she gets to come back here, the fact that, you know, she finds the family and she's going to take this personal vested interest, I think works really well for the character and also showing, you know, her ability that she is the red queen. Mm-hmm. She gets to, you know, if she sees something like this that she wants to deal with, she doesn't have to ask for permission. She sure. can just be like, oh, oh. Oh, we're going to be dealing with Madripoor now.
4: Yep. I'm going to buy up a whole bunch of property and this is here. Here's the new plan. Yeah. I love that. Her autonomy there was, was really cool to see.
1: There is, there is just one thing missing from all this Madripoor stuff. And I really hope that we get it soon. All of these Madripoor scenes, this one and the final one just made me want Mystique in this book so much Mm. because we are not, it was not too long ago that Mystique bought basically the whole island of Madripoor and ran shit there during the Bendis run. And now she did some bad things to my girl, Allison Blair. But like Mystique has a vested interest in Madripoor and we have not been getting a lot of good Mystique content and talk about another strong female character with agency who has a vested interest in what's going on here. Like, I want her to be pissed off at what Rendy's been doing and get involved in taking this shit back too. I, I want Mystique thrown into the mix on this book. She has other things to worry about.
4: Yeah, no, but we do definitely need more yeah, Mystique. But we're
7: not getting those other things we're in not, another yeah,
4: book. Yeah. So Mystique why not? Is, you have <laughs> to be he patient. You have to be patient. <laughs> criminally <laughs> underused. Aside from that, one great issue in X Men. Yeah, and I can tell that Hickman's saving a big story. But yeah, I 100% agree with you. Mystique should be getting a lot more, a lot more screen time.
2: But like, see, so for me with Hickman the thing for me is like the tension and like like going back to the whole Wolverine like well no not going back. the whole Wolverine thing and like how she still hasn't been seen for a year like oh I freaking live for that if if we went another year without seeing it even like even better because I just I, I live for the tension and just like the that like what's happening you know what I mean it's it's kind of like that's the, probably the one thing that I'm living for most about the Hickman era as a whole it's what's happening next and you're not getting that tension relief and that's kind of and there's there's like so many things that are like that that it, that it just keeps you turning the page with every single issue every single book
1: oh yeah okay so now we're on to you know the big the big scene here and we we talked about it a little because we had to uh shit talk Fenris um as is obligatory the obligatory Fenris shit talking but Callisto versus Storm and as we talk about this I really want to invite Drew and Evelyn here Drew and Evelyn I know this week not only read Marauder 17 but went back and read Uncanny 106 for the OG Storm Callisto battle. And I I did not, I have not read that issue in a couple of years. And I want to hear some takes on how these play together. Because look, we could just say like, this is amazing. Like this, this is, it's so well done. It's so true to both characters. Like what we got in Marauder 17 was great now, but historically tying it all together, Drew and Evelyn, talk yeah. to me about that.
2: Yeah. So for context, what happens in Uncanny 170 is um, in regards to this issue, you is Angel is kidnapped um, and he's like basically like half naked he's only wearing underwear and looks so hot um, <laughs> and Storm and Kitty have been kidnapped and then the X-Men are coming in to save them. Um, the thing is that Storm and Kitty have been touched by plague so they're sick and not feeling well so the only way that Callisto will let them leave is if uh, like a trial by combat and Storm basically volunteers to, to do it and that's kind of the issue um, and the, the battle really plays out very similarly to how it plays out in this issue. Um, Kind of what I thought was really interesting.
3: Oh yeah it's okay so don't get mad at me but I wasn't the big Callisto fan back in the day when I like was first reading her I thought that it was just it wasn't just for me but as I've read more and more of her and more of the modern stuff I have grown to really respect her and really like her so I, I like this growth that she has had and this accumulating into her fight to get her powers back and Storm being the one to do that. It really brings this round table of they hated each other and they had this trial by combat where Storm just defeats her and becomes the new leader of the Morlocks versus now they not necessarily friends but they respect each other enough where Storm is going to do this incredible thing for her that's very meaningful and powerful. So I just loved the way that that came around full circle.
2: Yeah, they don't use powers in there like it's like they only use like daggers and i kind of would have liked to see that aspect in this as well um, just because callisto can't use her powers because she doesn't have them it would have solidified that um kind of nod to the issue well
4: but they did nod to the issue because because callisto even offers her when she arrives she's like
1: need a knife and i
2: wish storm would have taken it and, and not used her power
1: that is true yeah i think that kind of goes to show here like they alluded to it they had the knives there But we saw a reluctant storm who did not want to engage in this battle, who cared about Callisto so much that she really tried to make it as quick and painless and humane as she could. Like she didn't want to be stabbing and Right. It was literally just a punch. It was just a punch that caused a heart attack. It's not like shocked her heart. Yeah, she lightning zapped her heart and then she held her weeping. Yeah, Um, and it's like very
4: clear to us, but if we were sitting there watching the crucible, it would have literally just looked like a punch, you wouldn't really see, yep.
1: and then we get straight to Storm. We go panel to panel Storm holding her, weeping to her, hatched out of the egg, and Storm raising her hand and reintroducing her. Oh. Yeah, and, which-
2: I- and I love that we get to see Storm's powers tied to her emotions again. We haven't seen that in a while.
1: Yeah cuz look at the the rain and the storm swirling around her as she's crying there like it is it's it's powerful it's, it's, powerful. it's really well done and then we get to see the reborn Callisto with the beautiful change in coloring You know, I've mentioned a couple times I love what the coloring team on these books do. Not just Marte Gracia, but the way that some of the other colorists like Edgar Delgado are able to match his bright tones on Krakoa, but then change from scene to scene. You know, we get some really dynamic color changes in these books, and from all of the dark grays and blues of the Callisto fight, the, the icy colors of their clothes and everything going on around it, straight into the The greens and the yellows and the oranges of the rebirth on Krakoa just showing like from death to life. It's in sketches, it wouldn't be the same or as powerful. Um, Edgar Delgado adds so much to this.
4: The colors are are really incredible. And I think that was really cool that they took a panel to show us kind of how Callisto perceives the world around her through her power. I thought that was really cool because her power has always been pretty simple and straightforward, right? Like heightened senses, strength, agility, and it's about it, you know? So seeing it illustrated in such a beautiful and creative way, I thought was a, a, a nice little touch
1: yeah because it's the type of thing that we've gotten for a lot of other characters when they've lost their powers that you know that it's like losing other senses that it's like having their fingers cut off that it's like we've gotten these but Callisto was just never given enough of the time of day to really have that to be able to empathize with her on it and again Duggan giving these characters their agency and you know really allowing fully fleshing them out um, and paying attention to them like this we do get to see it for Callisto and it's great you know it's, it's a Shame that we hadn't before. Was
4: anyone else a little slightly, I won't say disappointed, but maybe before you turn the page, kind of hoping maybe that you would see a new Callisto emerge with some tentacle arms?
3: I was
4: that's a thing, guys. I yeah.
3: thought about I
1: tentacle arm Callisto, like it definitely came across my mind. Imagine? I wasn't hoping for it, but Can you imagine it I did. went through the I...
4: crucible because I wanted my tentacles back? <laughs>
1: it did yeah it it's for the blooper reel
3: I mean, especially because we've had that story with her before where she goes through this transformation to go back to her beautiful self rather than this scarred, deformed self and how she really struggles with her identity with that. I feel like it could have been almost it could have been really interesting to see them. It's like, oh, this is who your true self is. But at the same time, it could also be come off as preachy, maybe. So
1: let's think about there could be
3: pros and cons of it.
1: Callisto's true self here still has an eye patch on
3: oh that's true
1: oh that's so true that's so in terms of what she chose to come back with and not like of who she feels her true self is true self callisto still has an eye patch and true self Callisto's
4: also hot because Callisto in like her first appearances was drawn hideous. And then like in the 90s, when she was dating Colossus, she got really hot. And I think it's kind of cool that in this new Krakoan era, she doesn't, you know, she feels okay with being hot again. You know, she, she didn't feel the need to come back scarred and deformed in the way she looked as a Morlock. But she
1: kept yeah. the eye patch. I love that. So then we go to our final scene. Our final scene of the book brings us to those shitty hellfire Verendi kids. One of them looking like a wrinkled old lady. All of a sudden, I don't know what's up with that because usually they're like little kids. And they're oh no, that's um, that's Zhao. Whatever. I hate them. I hate all of these characters. I, I was really kind of hoping that Kitty was just going to like light the place on fire or something. Um, yeah, I can't say that I'm the biggest fan of this. Either. We did get a nice. Uh, Nice real estate development project. Be a shame if something happened to it.
2: Even like the the data page before, how it goes into like the whole Dolores thing. I'm kind of just like, yeah, eh about that. I'm like, eh. Oh, Honestly? you're in eh
4: about it? I'm excited.
1: Dolor- is Dolores, ex- Dolores our ex-desk lady that Storm oh. met on the subway, right? Correct. Yeah, but I just yeah. find
2: that it's like, ugh. Like that's It's too It's it's really cheesy I think it's But really this is
3: cheesy. so Emma It's so Emma To invite them to a party And you know full well She's gonna torment them And threaten them In front of everyone And she is not gonna give A single flying fuck it's out gonna It's gonna be It's gonna be amazing
2: I just don't really think That's that Like I just don't like That use of the data pages And like
3: Oh that's true
4: I no I got it
2: I think that the data pages Should be used for things That like I wanna give Information to the reader But I don't have time To explain this Or a way to explain this as someone saying it. So, so I'm just going to put it well, in this long form.
1: Well, yeah, I, I, I will like, argue that I'm, here because we've talked about on uh, this podcast a number of times that we like the way that they use the data pages, not just to give us information, but also as like commercial breaks, as like yeah. scene breaks in between. And I, I do think that the way the last one ended with Callisto Reborn and Storm looking out over the water and, you know, thinking that, you know, the winds are shifting and I long for the change. We needed a break from that to kitty visiting the shitty kids. Yeah, like We needed a commercial break, scene break. And I don't really care that like if it was good information or bad information in there, like I needed a data page there to scene break it. I agree with you on that. I just don't think that it should be used as a plot device.
2: I think it should be used as an information device.
4: But this is why I like this. And this from the X desk has been like a recurring thing. and, And we've seen like from different people that work in this office. And I love it because you get a sense of a character who is not on panel, who doesn't really seem, you know, important to, like, the future of Krakoa, but it helps kind of contextualize Krakoa within the greater scheme of of Earth right now, right? How other nations and and other people are dealing with this new mutant hierarchy, and I think that's really important, because otherwise, we're just living our best life on Krakoa. I think the X-Desk is a nice way to, like, take you out of, you know, the the X-Men paradise and into the real world again, and, and how people we yeah, looking in,
2: and again, like I agree with, I agree with the use the use of it in in Marauders. I just don't agree with making it like a plot device and being like this is a p- person who could be a potential villain for them in the future just have that information so that we know about it and then
1: move on i never got that feeling i mean any more so than that she was just a human but i want to go around give me your final thoughts on this issue what you want to see in the dinner party and which marauder character you miss the most go ahead drew
2: okay i actually really liked this issue probably one of my top favorite marauders issues um what was the second question (laughs) What do you want to see in Emma's Dinner Party? I want shit to happen. Like, I want it, like, I want it to be a clusterfuck. I want it to be, like, I just want shit to happen. It's not going to
1: go well. That's what I want. (laughs) And which OG Marauders character are you missing the most right now?
2: To be honest, I, well, I don't really, I I want Storm to go into a different book because I want her I want her to have a bigger role than she did in Marauders. She did, really didn't have a huge role in Marauders for Storm, who is like a huge character and is like so loved by the fan base. And I actually I do want Bishop to have a bigger role in Marauders because he really hasn't been featured in it yet.
1: Evelyn, same questions.
3: Alright, well, anyone who listens to this knows just how much I'm, like, in love with Emma, and I just oh, I'm so looking forward to this dinner party, y'all. Oh my gosh, I can't <laughs> express enough how excited I am, because this is very much Hellfire Club and Emma, and, like, I've been missing her in the panels and having her be kind of at the forefront of something and being in charge of something and seeing that being in charge, so I just I just just hope that it's everything that I dream of and more um, as for who I miss honestly it's not necessarily missing I want to see more of Christian Frost I think he has the potential to be a really interesting and dynamic character and with the way that they're kind of been writing him he seems kind of fun where we know that he's been through a lot and I I can definitely see him becoming a greater role um so that's kind of it and I think I'm missing a question. No, that was all three. Was it? Okay, cool.
1: <laughs> Arturo. Give me the questions one more time. I'm sorry. Last thoughts on this issue. What do you want from Emma's dinner party? And which OG Marauder are you missing the most?
4: Last thoughts on this issue. I love this issue. I think it was good to uh after all of the as Callisto put it, X of Swords nonsense. Uh it's nice that we're getting back on track and moving stories forward. And I think Dugan did an incredible job of advancing a whole lot of lots and i'm really excited to see what what's coming og marauder that i miss the most god damn it give me some pyro where's my ice man Uh, and i'll keep beating this drum give me more bishop god damn it what do i want the most out of hellfire gala i would love to see more of the hellfire trading court established i'd like to to fill some more of those roles i want to see Ooh, here's something i want to see harry leland resurrected and maybe ultimately replace sebastian shaw as black king Um, so yeah more hellfire shenanigans give it to me
1: i loved this issue i loved how much we're getting i want more issues that really kind of move and tie and bring a lot of characters in if we want to call it like claremontian just having the multiple threads running through you know stopping and starting at different points like that is x-men for me i love this um this way of storytelling with the broadcast of characters i want from my hellfire gala i want some og hellions in there i want uh like Jets stream and tarot and uh such i want to get some of them in there i want emma like reuniting and bringing the like different students of hers from the past back as like team emma in the shadows reminding people like how vast her army is and i miss pyro i want pyro setting shit on fire and flirting with every boy he sees i do love pyro he was he was so good in those first few issues
0: Hey everybody, Nico here again, and I love this next segment. Myself, Jonah, Maddie, Raven, and my husband and series original co-host, Kevo, come together to talk about the Eternals a little bit. And after our make sure everybody knows what an Eternal is conversation, we were all really ready to dive into the first issue, and it was a lot of fun taking a look at this beautiful, intense issue filled with characterization, nuance, and powerful changes for the Marvel Universe at large. We hope you guys enjoy. Hey everybody and welcome back to Exes for Podcast. I'm Nico and you can find me online on Twitter and Instagram at Nico Action. That's Nicoaction. That's
8: N I C O A C T I O N. Hey guys, it's Maddie and as always you can find me over on Instagram at the Basely covetous man and over on Twitter at Covetous.
9: And I'm Raven aka Dame Red Bento, just type that in, you can find me all over the place, especially on Twitter. I'd love to see you sometime
10: and I'm Kevo of the Husbands Talking More or Less podcast and you can find me online at kevo really k e v o r e a l l y
5: and I'm Jonah you can follow me over on Twitter and Instagram at peak jonah and we hope you survive this experience
10: i think that brings us to the
0: beginning of Eternals number 1 by Kieran Gillen and Esad Ribic which see the Eternals resurrected after their brutal death in the pages of Avengers number four from 2018 by Jason Aaron. The story there was that the Celestials kind of revealed that humans as an experiment to be examined was always the thing. The Celestials were always essentially there just to make sure the humans made it to this stage of the experiment. The Eternals were there just to make sure that the humans made it to this stage of the experiment. And the entirety of the Eternals were killed by the dark Celestials. Now, one Eternal survived long enough to die in Tony Stark's arms, because that's what you do. And that was Icarus. And he was like, oh, dead. Bye. And so that was the end of the Eternals in the Marvel Universe for two years. Now, we find ourselves here in this. I mean, like, I've never read a comic that felt like it had a blue filter on it, like it was a season four episode of Supernatural. But that's what this had. Now, it focused primarily on three Eternals. We saw things through the eyes, predominantly of Icarus, plus the inclusion of Sprite, and then to a lesser extent, Zuras. And man, this was was some atmosphere building issue. How did you guys feel jumping into the Eternals feet first?
5: For someone like me who knew nothing about the Eternals, and I I legitimately had no prior knowledge outside of maybe the name Cersei and what could potentially be seen of who's playing who in the MCU upcoming movie. So coming into it, I had, I was like, okay, brand new start. I I know nothing. And this book tells me maybe 3% of the information that I might need to know about what I need. I personally felt very lost on what was going on. And it took me quite a while to even kind of figure out, oh okay this is what's supposed to be happening question mark I you know
8: I I would say that I have to disagree in a sense although as Nico just jogged my memory I have read that celestial's appearance in the first volume of the current run of Avengers uh, from 2018 uh, that said I found that the the pacing of this issue was fine for me I do feel like to agree with Jonah in in a sense I I could have used for more more eternal's backlog I could have used for a little bit of a refresher as to what their ability sets were other than immortality but aside from that I didn't find myself lost in the content just a little bit lost for an identity
0: And
5: maybe I should clarify I'm more about the, background information and the details that I don't understand because I don't have that background. I think the plot is nothing hard to follow. I understood what the issue what the issue was trying to tell me. But there are things that I don't understand about the Eternals that the book didn't give me and that I'm still lost by.
9: And to me, it was kind of like a, a it harkened back to like the 1970s kind of storytelling. So it was information heavy and it felt like it really was giving you a, a, a reboot of kind of what the situation was going on, like what an Eternals existence is for and a little bit of what it was about. But yeah, it very much centered on on Icarus and getting him back up and running but didn't give you too much information on, say, the other characters other than Sprite.
8: Well, and I, I, I wonder uh, how much of that is because we don't know who the entire cast is going to be. Sure, we were told all of the Eternals that we know of have been resurrected or the, the Eternal equivalent to resurrection. But I wonder I wonder who is going to round out this cast. I wonder if it'll be all familiar faces. I wonder if it'll be just a core four.
10: Something else I find really interesting upon meeting character initially like Sprite like this is that it is my understanding that Sprite was not previously a young girl. And that is something that they have already gone forward with in the MCU adaptation that uh, Sprite has the appearance of a 12 year old girl. So I wonder how many other characters are going to translate Either similarly to their MCU iteration or perhaps something else altogether. Because Icarus in this doesn't really resemble Richard Madden from what we've seen of how he is going to be seen as Icarus. Makari is a black woman in the film. So I don't know. Maybe we'll see that in the comics as well. Or maybe someone else entirely will be something entirely new.
9: I mean, they kept saying Sprite was supposed to look like an 11-year-old girl. And I'm just going, nothing about this character reads 11 year old girl <laughs> between the hair and just the features i was just like are you sure
10: i think the <laughs> glowing greenitude probably threw that image off a little as well
8: i also wonder how much of it is just asad rivik's specific art style i think i think he he does figure work very well and i think he does landscape work very well and I think that he does structured musculature and and physique well. And I think there's a, there's, like, if you look at his Iron Man to appear, if you look at his Iron Man suit, there's such a beautiful structure to it. But when it comes down to the minutia of the faces...
9: The hair would have been just the, the, a helper for me. So she's like, I'm looking at that hair, I'm going, I don't know too many 11-year-old girls. I mean, unless they cut the hair themselves, but you know.
0: On the subject of both the line work and Iron Man... Isad Ribic has such delicate pencil lines, like I feel sometimes if I blow too hard on the page, they're going to break. They're just so fine and so incredibly delicate. And I love the way it translates to the page having this almost like a wind effect. I feel like there's always wind blowing through every panel he does. And it was great to see his Iron Man and also, of course, the last page reveal of Thanos. But I couldn't help but notice if you're an if you're an MCU fan, you're gonna have seen an Endgame, and then you're gonna come see Eternals, and then you're gonna go home, and you're gonna buy the first Eternals trade, and of course Thanos and Iron Man are gonna be in the first Eternals trade that you buy, helping you ground it back to the MCU. And, you know, it's just so fascinating because there wasn't a lot of plot this issue in the same way there wasn't a lot of plot in sword issue one. This was really about helping us to understand the reintroduction of the Eternals into the Marvel Universe at large. Part of that was helping us to understand the Marvel Universe in regard to the Eternals, but also part of that was helping us to understand the Eternals in regard to the Marvel Universe. By resetting Sprite as a female and replacing one of the male characters, you were able to have two major Eternals, one male and one female, without being bound by a sense of, well, they're both males, and losing that sense of gender diversity and inclusion that makes a comic better. And it's this sort of change—a young boy to a young girl. You know, there's nothing wrong with having a character choose to express themselves. It's like the Doctor, who's changed from you know the 12th Doctor, a man, to the 13th Doctor, a woman. Expressing this other part of yourself is a really dynamic way to move these characters forward, and a way in which that they're very different from the X Men. We know that the X-Men can like sequence their genes pretty and can get rid of, you know, uh, damages that they've accumulated over the years. But the Eternals, they can just completely redesign who they are. And I loved that moment when Tony was like, have I met this one? I have not met this one. And Icarus is like, yeah, they change what they look like sometimes. It's no big deal. And Tony's like, I have not met this one. And like, <laughs> there's just this amazing sense of humor that runs throughout this issue. Just like the, is there something wrong? You just said something. You just said there's nothing wrong. No, yes, no, no. Like the humor of the way the panels play out, there's a great sense of largeness of the entirety of the universe, but there's an incredible sense of humanity. And gentle humor in that humanity.
10: I have to say, though, I really appreciated you giving us the backstory of how the Eternals went away last and the scene between Tony and Icarus, because... I already felt like the scene between Tony and Icarus felt kind of flat for me on my first read, and knowing that there is that sort of backstory between the two characters, I feel that even more strongly. I'm not expecting some sort of big dramatic scene. I I know there isn't really room for that, especially in a first issue, because I really agree with a lot of what you said about the reasons they put the things in this issue that they put in there, to try and draw in new readers, and it's like Raven was saying earlier Earlier about the 70s-esque storytelling where it's very informational while not being too info-dumpy. It feels very much like there is going to be more information coming as each issue comes out. But, like, it was just a bit too quick and glib for Icarus to have died in Tony's arms, for Tony to just happen to waltz up on them right in Times Square as they appear. You're alive! Okay. Glib comment, bye. And we're off.
8: (laughs) Eternal's gotta Eternal.
10: Yeah, like, Eternal's gotta Eternal. I I imagine we'll probably get some sort of more reaction at some point, but it it was just a bit like I said glib well and there were other
0: moments about that that played off a little better but also kind of like I get that Sprite is supposed to be you know amazed by people and hey shout out to my Savage Avengers buddies the Hyborian (laughs) Age comment yeah that was a nice little Conan nod right (laughs) nice little thing for our Savage crew I know that I
9: I laughed so so hard when when Sprite is like
0: is a whole man made
10: of iron (laughs) but then she knows the word van
9: Mm mm-hmm (laughs)
7: <laughs>
10: your van of medicine.
9: What? Right?
0: It's like, um... oh. Now, Jonah, I think my question for you as the guy newest to comics is how do you feel about a universe like the Marvel Universe where your superheroes are essentially these days a pantheon who are respectful of a pantheon? like the Asgardians, and then add in that extra layer where the Eternals are like, yes, we're kind of above the Asgardians, but they get real salty if you talk about it.
5: It, I guess... I don't know the best way to describe my feelings about it because I don't think there's a problem drawing inspiration from mythology, but I think this is where we see a problem where they start getting catty with one another, over well we're the real gods no we're actually gods and it's all like well no you're all comic book characters that's number one number two i it it feels it feels like a cool flex like a weird flex man we get it you you were created by celestial beings to be gods and you get mad when you get called gods because the old gods are like but we're gods I just think it's a, personally a weird dynamic that I don't know if it really adds anything, unless there are characters who are struggling with this identity crisis of like being treated and worshipped like a god, but they're not, and they don't think they are. I I don't, I fail to see how that's as interesting if it's not that way.
0: You're fine. So you're fine with a polytheistic multi-god thing as long as it's not everybody trying to out-god dick each other.
5: Yeah, you don't, you don't need to constantly whip it out and be like, mine's bigger. It's like, no, you guys do different things. There's plenty of room to be gods elsewhere. I like, I promise you the universe is vast and there's multiple in your own canon. You can, you can, everybody can be a god.
10: But you know what? In that regard, I hadn't considered until you framed it that way. But I feel like that's how animals must view our power struggles. Like, because even all these gods that are fighting over saying, but we're real gods. Yeah, but you're all pretty much like on the same level for whatever you like to call yourselves. And there's probably stuff above you guys, too. So like, everybody calm down. There's always a bigger fish
9: well and they're not gods they're they're eternals they're servitors to gods they're at best minor deities or or angels but yeah like the fact that he's just like oh yes people sometimes mistake us for gods and wor- worship us as such it's so annoying i'm like mean girl please sit your ass down you're an errand can boy. i please have
0: your problem don <laughs> right? please please lid to the petri dish can i have your problems
9: please right like seriously come on
8: i I wanted to uh to give some credence to something that Nico had pointed out earlier the the Tony Stark and Thanos appearances being meant as anchors for the uninitiated m c u viewer turned reader uh there is a quote on page eight of digital talking about the exclusion process uh the exclusion process being a eternal like sprite who was excluded until for whatever reason be it her murderous tendencies before was excluded from resurrection before finally being brought back and the quote is across the ages more have been excluded for unforgivable errors from apocalyptic auto-deification to siring a creature that killed half the galaxy with a single finger click obviously that's thanos and
0: And thanos himself is even considered to be a eternal an eternal a an an eternal right So he's a pretty major figure in this series. Now, this ending here, this shock of an ending for me, first of all, there's this time travel element, and he fails to save someone, and then he vows instead he will save them, and if you were reading comics a couple of years ago, there was an event called Age of Ultron, which also, of course, ties back into the films in a matter of speaking. The event and the film had nothing in common, but the outcome of the event was there can be no more timey-wimey. Timey-wimey has to be done And this is kind of introducing the possibility that timey-wimey may be back on again, right? They might be trying to make a tradition out of it. And between that and Thanos... I really feel like this last couple of pages of this issue brought in so many elements of a bigger picture of the Marvel Universe. I think because the Eternals are kind of the replacement in humans are kind of the replacement X-Men, but oh man, now we have the X-Men back so the Eternals can be whatever the Eternals want to be sort of situation that they have found themselves in has led to an opportunity to integrate the Eternals into the bigger picture of the Marvel Universe in a way that kind of lets the Inhumans off the hook for a little while. The Inhumans saw a cataclysmic rise and fall very quickly in a matter of a few years. So I think this positions the Eternals in a big way to be a big player in the next couple of years. How do you guys feel about this ending and the significance of seeing, you know, the god of death for all intents and purposes and this possibility of damaging the time stream in the name of a vain attempt to not lose?
9: Well, I mean, they did tell us that uh, this place that they hopped to was basically the original home of the Eternals, but it existed as a pocket dimension mention. So it was uh it was three seconds before everything happened, but also two seconds after everything else happened. So it was a place of of weird timey whiminess almost like Blightspoke, where you could see the past and you could also see the future and the present time all in kind of one swirling miasma. So yeah, I mean if if a version of Thanos got stuck there or thrown there, that could open up a lot of really scary but wonderful possibilities in many ways
5: so because you brought up the Asgardians I need the Eternals for me to enjoy them and for me to feel like they have a role is them to kind of cultivate this niche where only they can be there you know, if they're trying to fill this god-esque role, whether they're not, whether they're gods or not, and they aren't, it's already filled by so many different titles and people within the Marvel Universe that I don't know if they will be able to set themselves apart by going that route. For them to make a really big impact, and I would love for them to make a big impact because that means that there's more comics and more interaction, and I would love to see how they interact with the X-Men, I need them to be able to say this is, we're the Eternals and only we can be in these specific situations. Only we can solve these problems. Here's why we're great. Here's why these X, Y, and Z is a threat. And until they're able to do that, I'm gonna have a hard time connecting to them, or caring about them, or wanting to read more, because I'm not. Good. I'm just gonna say, well, why would I read this when I can just go read Thor? Why would I read this when I can go read Inhumans? What What makes them special? But besides being, you know, handcrafted by ancient alien gods.
10: I get what you're saying. I do sort of need them to get to the point a little quickly. I don't want them to give away everything they're planning for the Eternals right away, obviously. But if we don't have some idea as to why they're being brought back within a reasonable number of issues, I am sort of left wondering what is the point other than they have a movie coming out. You know, as you said, there's the Inhumans, there's Asgardians, there's there's already a lot of teams that fill the narrative hole that would be left by these characters being absent and it's only been two two and a half years since they left the marvel universe so this is very quickly to bring those characters back in such a rebooty way without a specific purpose especially with everything you already have going on with the x-men and krakoa
9: I'm going to make a prediction. Go for it. I'm predicting that they are going to bring back the Eternals using the Guardians of the Galaxy because the Guardians of the Galaxy have had multiple run-ins with uh, either Celestial-imbued items or Celestials themselves, a.k.a. Ego. So I think because of that repeated use of Celestials in Guardians of the Galaxy, that's probably where they're going to bring them back. I don't know if they're going to bring them back um, with Iron Man and Strange, But I think the Eternals meeting up with the Guardians of the Galaxy and kind of going from there and seeing where Celestials have died or where old gods have died and trying to figure out the balance of the universe, that might be where they fit into the MCU. You
10: know, I wanted to, something Nico said earlier, or the fact that they kept coming up in conjunction with the Eternals made me want to ask, so do the Celestials always have to show up where the Eternals are? Or can the Eternals be in the Marvel Universe at least for a period of time? without the Celestials having to show up. Because I can definitely see where you're coming from. I really love your prediction. And I think it also ties in a lot with things that have been done in the Marvel Cinematic Universe that they could, you know, tie everything in nicely to make it appealing to both the film audiences and the comic audiences. But so do we feel that the Celestials are always going to be involved where the Eternals are evolved? I don't think I can see a world
0: where they are separate Unfortunately, frustrates the hell out of me because i would like to see it be more unique and independent but unfortunately yeah i think it is the case that it is hard to separate them they are eternally locked
10: because then that to me says that uh, we probably do have some idea of at least a very near future threat that will be coming to the marvel cinematic universe if the eternals are always followed by the celestial showing up or you know they follow the Celestials showing up, whatever order, then that is probably going to be some sort of Ultron Thanos level threat in the MCU in the next few years.
8: The fun theory that I thought I'd bring up before we wrap today, today's discussion on Eternals number no. 1 by Kieran Gillen. If we take a look back at Eternals number no. 1 from 1976, Jack Kirby establishes that the Celestials first interacted with humans, which is where the Eternals come from. They're celestially imbued humans humans but there was also mentioned that the celestials gifted the x gene to humanity and in doing so created homo superior now where that stands in terms of canon today is up for debate and is anybody's guess but because of that people are assuming that the eternals movie might be some sort of a backdoor in for the x-men in the mcu
0: so we have kind of an answer on that thanks to the work of mark wade's histmu that's the history of the marvel universe if anybody wants to check that out on Marvel Unlimited, the idea is actually that they're kind of responsible for all mutation on earth so it's not just things like mutants but any sort of evolutionary reality that occurs because of a dying celestial major yeah like kind of like you know in some ways the hulk is a result of celestial involvement and the asgardians in some regards are connected to a celestial involvement So there really is a lot to be said for what you're saying in a big, big picture. And I would not think it was a bad idea for Marvel to use that connective tissue to segue that. That's a great point.
5: Thank you. I have two things. One, I know we said it fell flat. Some of us felt that it fell flat. But the interaction with Iron Man for a new reader like me really helped of how the Eternals fit into the Marvel universe already or previously. So if there were more interactions like that with characters that are more well-known, that can kind of basically saying like, Hey, remember when this happened, I know it would help me so that I can be like, Oh, okay, cool. This is how they know each other. My second point is I want to just gush. Can I gush about the variant covers real fast in the the Jen Bartel one and the Ryan Gar- Gonzalez, both of them are really spectacular and amazing. And if I was buying this in like physical trade form, I would absolutely want one of those two covers.
10: I get that. I get that.
9: I love the variant covers were really well done. And if people know me, they know that I'm kind of harsh when it comes to comics. Um, I'm very blunt. But I, I will have to say, I actually, I really like this. Having some background of knowing about the Eternals and whatnot, that definitely helped. But yeah, it's it was a really interesting kind of harken back to the old days and kind of, kind of getting readers caught up to speed on the Eternals. So I actually really want to see what comes next with this story. Storyline And how they're going to integrate with the uh, with a larger MCU.
10: I really agree with you. And I love that you compare it to older storytelling, because Nico has brought me up on a steady and unhealthy diet of the weirdest old comics. And uh, for anyone who listened to the Marvel Captain Marvel Marvel Man uh it was it, it, it's a nightmare of a series but it's wonderful in in that david lynchian sort of way and i wonder if maybe having been brought up on comics through that and through the sandman by gaiman so like no surprise that he wrote for the eternals I am used to this sort of showing, not telling, but also telling, but also not really telling everything all at once kind of expositiony opening story for a universe like this, where everything is weird and you don't fully know what's going on, but you're not completely lost. So I see where Jonah's coming from. I see where Raven's coming from. I think that it's a little bit of both, depending on where you come from in terms of your own comic history. And I think that we will have to wait and see as the story unfolds, how they balance what they do and do not tell us.
0: I just want to see a loving, touching tribute to a Jack Kirby concept. Jack Kirby is, you know, the King of all things here at Marvel here at Marvel. Hey guys, this is a Marvel show. So, it's so important to me that he sees respect and he sees his due. Now, I kind of have to put out there that as long as this is more respectful of the Eternals than the Eternal was, everything will be just fine. Now, what was the Eternal, you ask? When Marvel was trying everything they could to pack every kind of to pack every revamp they could into the Max line, they gave the reins over to a gentleman that we have on more than one occasion found ourselves a little critical of chuck austin and over at max he created the eternal and it was about akkadian the leader of the eternals who arrives on earth at the dawn of man and evolves humankind from homo erectus so he can use them as slaves to mine raw materials for the celestials his bosses carassus who is the second in command of the mining mission and who is to determine akkadian and and who is determined to undermine and kill Akkadian's precious slave girl and son. That is from the writer himself. He then would go on to say, in this version, we take some of the concepts from the original series and build around them, throwing away some stuff and keeping others. We're actually going back in time to see Icarus birth and development on Earth, meet his parents, and then move forward into contemporary time. I kind of can't even keep talking about it, but reviews included phrases like ghastly, I, I can't get past the word ghastly being in a review. Another review referred to it as perverting it for the reason of free press coverage. Oh. The series was canceled after six issues and did not go on to see further publication. So as long as Gillen and Ribbick stay clear of that, which they clearly already have and are already doing a beautiful job molding and shaping a title, I'm pretty excited to keep reading. everybody, Nico here again, and this last segment is a personal favorite of mine. I am very attached to God Loves Man Kills by Chris Claremont and Brett Anderson. It has always remained a powerful hallmark of my X-Men experience, and we've talked about it a few times here on the show, but this next segment is an edited cutdown of a much longer segment that you're going to be able to find on our newly launching YouTube channel. Head on over to YouTube and search for X's for a podcast, and you're going to be able to find some amazing videos featuring content not on the podcast. So if you like what you hear here, I think you're going to like a lot more what you see there. And this next segment is a look at God Loves Man Kills featuring some of our newest collaborators as well as some of our most classic contributors. Yeah. <laughs> I'm joined by Rod, Nathan, Tori, and Blake as the five of us come together to talk about what makes God Loves, Man Kills so timeless and whether or not those additional pages are timeless as well. Again, if you like what you hear, you're going to want to check it out over on YouTube where there's an additional 20 minutes of content in this clip alone as well as there's going to be a whole lot more clips to check out. Don't forget to come back next week to check out God Loves, Man Kills Part 2 as well as a lot more content here on X's for Podcast. If you like what you hear, subscribe, and don't forget to drop us a review over on Apple Podcasts. And we're going to be launching our Patreon soon, so if you want to help support, we're going to have a link to that in the near future. Don't forget to check us out on Twitter at X's for Podcast, and we'll talk to you guys soon. Hey, everybody, and welcome back to X's for Podcast. I'm your host, Nico, and you guys can find me at NicoAction on Twitter and Instagram. That's N-I-C-O-A-C-T-I-O-N. And with me today, I've got some amazing people. I'm
11: Rod. You can find me at Rod, The on Twitter and Instagram. Hey, I'm Nathan. You can find me on
12: Dazzler AOA at Twitter and Instagram. I'm Blake. You can find me at btmorgan85 on Twitter and Instagram.
7: Hi, I'm Tori. You can find me at Tori underscore Sheehan on Twitter and smtori on Instagram, but it's pretty private. You won't find me. <laughs>
0: So that means I have today with me three co-hosts and a ghost, and that sounds like perfect for what we're going to cover today. So what we're all here to cover today is probably one of the most magical X-Men stories ever. Well, magical is probably the wrong word. I know I kind of, magical race wars is not what we're here to talk about, no. but we're talk about one of the most beloved X-Men stories ever. I do want to start things off with, this is probably one of my most cherished X-Men stories because it actually highlights the magic of what X-Men could do in terms of celebrating and pointing to diversity and inclusion. And those are two really important things, especially in Chris Claremont's 20-year narrative on X-Men. So my question then for you guys becomes, what was your relationship with God Loves, Man Kills before this reading assignment, if you
11: had one? I did not have a relationship with it. I've always heard of the story, um, looked up references to it, but I've this is the first time I've read it in a whole. Obviously, I've seen the you know the Kitty Pryde incident and everything else leading up to it, um, but I've never read it in full until right now. And I was pleasantly surprised with it, honestly. Like sometimes when I read past stories, I'm not always enjoying them, <laughs> but <laughs> but this one, I, I feel like it still holds up to today for the most part.
0: Now, Tori, I know that one of your specialties with comics is specifically, you've read an incredible wealth of Marvel 60s comics compared to the average modern reader. You're a completionist and a canonist, and you like to go back to the beginning. So you've read 80s comics before. How did this hold up? Was it your first time reading it? And what were your thoughts in terms of the handling of the material?
7: So this was my first time reading it. It was interesting because I use Nico as Nicopedia a lot. I was very excited to see Magneto working with the X Men. I was like, "Oh great, this is a return to form." And he's like, "No, this is the first time that's happened." And I was like, oh, "Okay." And then as I was like, "Oh, who's this aerial chick? What's did, did was there another phaser?" And he was like, "No, no, no, no that's that was a thing. It, it's not real. It's not real." And so this was this was a lot of things that I thought I knew about X Men. So it's obviously very pivotal. to to the x-men mythos but this was the first time for a lot of things in them and so it was exciting to get to see something happen in a graphic novel format as opposed to the issues format where where it can feel like you're just pushing until a big cliffhanger until a cliffhanger until a finale so mm-hmm.
0: You might have pushing plot rope forever, and yeah. it, it drags on. Now, Blake, yeah. this was your first time too, so it's like the three of you were like God loves man kills first time reactions club, right?
12: Uh, yeah, I've I've heard about it for a while. I just recently started going back through X Men stuff once, like House of X and Powers of Ten, and all that started happening, um, and I've been really into it. But yeah, this was the first time for me, and I didn't really know what to expect other than you hear it talked about a lot, and the title was already familiar. So yeah, going through it, it was. Um, It was very intense. (laughs) Now, this was
0: not your first time reading it, but I believe this was your first time reading the extended edition.
6: It was, yeah, no, I hadn't read the extended edition before, and and to be honest, I hadn't actually reread God Loves, Man Kills for probably a decade. And probably the biggest (laughs) takeaway from the whole thing is that there's so much more truth to today than it was maybe ten years ago. It seems like so, I'm like, wow.
0: Now, I can't help but agree. I actually think this aged, I think in some ways, this aged extremely poorly. And I think in other ways, this Mm -hmm. aged beautifully. I do think there is a timeless nature to this book. The book was republished in June of 2020, part one. And then the other half, the the balance of it, because this was split in two at an interesting point, was released in October of 2020. I believe it would have been released a little bit sooner, but for some COVID concerns, right Mm -hmm. now. I can't wait to jump in with this and I need to start things off with the extended edition framing sequence pages one through five of, of the redone version. The extended edition contains a story between Kate pride And a young girl named Kate, who I later came to find out was from X-Men Black Magneto, something I had not known. So I went back and I read X-Men Black Magneto uh, while Tori was like, so who is this girl? And I'm like, I don't know. I think she was made up for this. Let me Google it. And I Googled it and I was like, well, shit, I missed this. And so I went back and I read it really quickly. And I'm not sure why he was allowed to reference that, but it's fine. It's fine. My main complaint here is that this sort of, I don't know if anybody here is familiar with the Golden Girls, uh, but there is an episode in which they put on a play that is the worst version of Our Town I have ever seen. And the actor (laughs) opens it up with, my story is not a pretty story, but it's one that needs to be told. That is this. It's Kate Pride hyper-personalizing a story that has nothing to fucking do with her in a lot of ways. Now, my question for you guys is, did you feel that this framing sequence added 40 years later created a new context for the story? And how did you feel about this framing sequence creating a new start point when the original start point is so powerful?
11: I would say it was cute, but especially since they reference X-Men Black, and I did read X-Men Black when it first came out, and I loved it the fact that they didn't have Magneto just come back and talk to her and just have the intro instead of just referencing Magneto, I feel like took away from it.
0: Now that was something that Tori had actually said to me. She was like, does Kate just go around talking to people for people all the time? And I was like, actually? Funny story. Kate is every old man's ambassador?
11: (laughs) It's true. It's true.
0: <laughs> so now, Tori, how did you feel about the fact that this transformation of the story did make it past the Bechdel test?
7: It did. I let. I, I guess I. En- I. Sure. You know what? Sure. It did. <laughs> uh, but that doesn't mean that it was a good idea. It doesn't bring me to anything. I'm shocked that it's referencing a one-off as opposed to referencing all the other things that are happening in the X-Men. To me, if you're going to put out the extended cut of something that is so pivotal to the X-Men, this huge graphic novel that should be slapped on everyone's like first-to-read list when you come to X-Men, is, it should be a gateway to what you're doing right now. I and agree. It's not now. Yeah. It, my frustration is because it get, takes
0: us away from that tragedy, that yeah. that breathtaking tragedy moment of the children dead in the park. And Anderson's pencils are dark and murky in a beautifully powerful way, like a Diodato or a malive. They express a sadness through their heaviness. And, you know, if you're a Buffy fan, you might remember the episode Gingerbread, which is one of the most pivotal episodes of Buffy ever, which opens up with a sequence that literally matches this shot for shot. I don't know why the fuck Ian McKellen didn't come in and say that he's part of Moo. So I was very eager to hear how you guys felt. Now, Rod, I know you're like you're like, you know, Buffy number one. So how did you feel about this story ultimately influencing Buffy Summers, Scott Summers? That's literally on purpose. Joss has said it. How do you feel about the reference of God Loves Man Kills in Gingerbread?
11: I love that episode. It definitely brings on a lot of points of society and how people overreact in certain certain situations or don't are underreact in different things. And I was actually really shocked by this scene in the book, because like you said in the beginning, when we get Kate talking to the girl and everything, I wasn't expecting children being shot (laughs) and then hung up. I was like, oh, oh, this is this is not what I expected. I mean, the title does say man kills. So it was very literal. But I appreciate that. A lot of pop culture has taken from the X-Men, you know, that that comics has influenced pop culture to this level. It's great.
0: How did you guys feel about this powerful iconography? Did it, you know, did it conjure images of Buffy for anyone else or was it just sort of like, oh, this is new to me, Dead Children in Park? <laughs>
6: <laughs> As always, having read it lot for for at least a decades, right? Um, sorry, hold on. Um, I would say that just the open on it was really powerful, and it really brought Magneto in in the way that made sense. It was really powerful at the time,
0: and I love that it has to be that it makes sense because when you're talking about a societal cancer, a, a virus of rage of hate, you need to be examining it from an understanding of the villain needs to be ideological. Bringing in Magneto creates an ideological villain. Now, he might not have been the world's most ideological villain at this time. Interestingly enough, Tori, you had said that even earlier in this video, you didn't know that Magneto hadn't been a good guy yet. So this was a really great time for them to remind us that bad guys have ideological standpoints. And that's where we get Stryker. Now, at one point, he was a stand-in for all evangelical and later even televangelical preachers. You know, he is Tammy Faye without the makeup. <laughs> but... True. I kind of feel like, you know, it used to be that he was a stand-in for evangelicals, but now he's a stand-in for our politicians. Tori, how does it feel seeing the bad guy of the X-Men? The, like Nathan points out, I mean, he's just Mike Pence. Yeah.
7: He he is just, he is everything. There's a lot about this, about Stryker, about the group at the Madison Square Garden that feels very yeah. different in a post-BLM protests pro- post-capital insurrectionist world. It just it it hits differently and to see 1982's version of a mob where people are like, get him! And then someone's like, oh wait I think he has a good point. And you're like, oh that's not how mobs work anymore. <laughs> <laughs> no. No, not, not at
6: probably. all. <laughs>
11: so
7: it was, it was really interesting but um, I've always, because I come to the X-Men from kind of more of a movie standpoint I've always understood that like the politicians are not the X-Men's friends and they're they're the other side of the they're the i don't want to say like final boss but they're the ones they're always trying to get at and there's just happens to be other things in the way that are more immediately dangerous
0: sentinels yeah yeah, yeah. avengers whatever yeah <laughs> <laughs> So I really, and I love that take on it, that there's always like another something in the way, because I've made this comparison a number of times with things where the the setup versus the execution, right? When we start Harry Potter as a journey, we think that Harry's going to have to face down Draco at some point, but that's not really logical. It's that Harry has to face Voldemort. Dumbledore cannot continue to face Voldemort for Harry. At some point, they have to extract that piece, and it has to elevate the kids to the adult level of the fight. And I bring that up because what follows that striker introduction is one of the most um, powerful yet egregious scenes in the history of X-Men for my, like, you know, I, I have furrow brow. And when we see Kitty Pride get into a fight, you know, we see this sort of kid version of what, what's going to happen. We see the versus Draco version here of what is ultimately going to be the versus Voldemort, the versus striker down the line. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I understand <laughs> it was a different time before was I was a born. <laughs> and so I can't pass judgment. I'm just dancing because I don't know what else to say. As a kid, I used to just be like, Stevie, curb stomp her. Stevie, Stevie, tell her she's wrong. And I, Rod, I really think it's more important that we hear this from somebody who is a man of color and lives a life where this is a reality every single day. How does this scene where Kitty uses an unforgivable racial slur and unfortunately not for the only time? No. Oh,
11: no. No. Yeah. I, (laughs) I've heard of the times that she's used it multiple times. Um, I never actually. This is my first time reading it. Instead, instead of actually just like looking at the panel, um, reading it in like sequence. And uh, yeah, no, she's wrong. <laughs> um, and it's um, I'm not as forgiving. I'm like, I will judge. I will judge. Um, it was further back. And I, I coming back from a non-judgmental standpoint I can see the point they were trying to make but having a young white woman tell an older black woman that you know she doesn't understand you know like injustice and I'm, I'm like hmm yeah I don't I don't I don't think so kitty I don't I don't Ariel I don't, <laughs> like, I don't maybe you should go back to the sea because I don't know like, <laughs>
0: right splashing around you have no business telling us what to do right and
11: and i don't like the fact that they like they just chalk it up to oh well you know she's young and and cute and innocent you know she doesn't know any better which you know might be true but educate her like and, and like and don't have the, I don't, I, and don't have the black woman be like oh well you know what she is right and like i'm like when i saw that i was like what yeah, except- is, is is there more there's not more <laughs> this
0: this Where ends is- there
9: how <laughs>
0: yeah yeah now so my question then would be in like a bigger picture for the sake of the evolution of this story right if you take a look in the bonus material which tori pointed out wonderfully they referenced the x Black story in the bonus material for fans who weren't sure where this additional Kate character came from. You can find it there and Blake you had said to me about the wealth of bonus material and i was really excited to read it for that reason and during my brief perusal of the bonus material uh chris claremont uh defends this usage but is in support of, of striking it out i how do you guys feel as 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 other people reading it like i mean i i don't i don't i don't want it there it was, i don't it was
6: uncomfortable yeah. Uh, yeah very uncomfortable
12: and and like rod said it not only is it massively uncomfortable but then like a couple panels later it, the the she's right. And it was like no she's not and it's so yeah that uh- I liked so much of, of this, but that part, and it comes so early. You're, you're, like, <laughs> oh. you're like, oh, no. Like, I was like, Nico, what are you making me read? What
0: is-? I, right, it, it makes my skin squick. But the fact that he even says that later on in the book, it was important to change the language for the, the Latino characters. And there were changes made to the language for the extended edition for the fight Kitty finds herself in on the street in the second half. I find myself a little uncomfortable unsure of the ground that Marvel is trying to take with their censorship and I think better than redacting the word would have been to rewrite the panel.
11: First of all, he's going to defend his work that is a, like is a classic cuz he wrote so much X-Men and all that. So he's going to be protective of that and it's still technically a white man's world even though it's slowly not becoming that as much anymore. It makes sense what they did. I don't agree with it, and I think it, like you said, should be rewritten. But I, and I know why it was like that. I know why it was just blacked out. <laughs> I know why it wasn't rewritten because they wanted it to just be like, oh well, we didn't really want to change Chris Claremont's work because he's such an icon to the X Men community, and it, he is. But you can still fix past mistakes. Like it's okay. <laughs>
7: I was yeah. also uh, pretty fascinated to find cuz I'm I'm on Marvel Unlimited when I read it that the original 1982 version not blacked out. Yes, yeah, not. So at it all. Has to live right there. Mm-hmm. And I was I expected once I pulled this one up and saw and saw the center I was like, so you'll fix this one but you're letting the el- other one just like live there? Really? Yeah.
0: It's not blacked out in the omnibus either.
6: No, in the uh, digital version of the uh, extended version is not blacked out
0: either so we are facing a number
12: out in the new single releases that they the new the director's cuts that came out before the hardcover so it's blacked out in your new hardcover
0: it's blacked out in the hardcover and has since been blacked out on the marvel unlimited version of the issue so there's a lot of inconsistency and you know it's not hard to do a download patch i understand you can't go back and you can't fix the original issue but if they have already done download patches for changing continuity things where, you know, they realize that they said someone's name wrong, if you can patch that, you can patch this. First yeah, of. exactly. Because otherwise, that kind of makes you know better than the scene that follows. We get the actual scene of, of televised hatred. And we, you know, there's something that even as a little kid, I remember thinking was mind-blowing because I read X-Men predominantly through trades initially. And I read Dark Phoenix Saga, and I read Inferno, and I read, you know, the trades, the big crossovers. And as a little kid, I said, reading this, I was like, they're upset watching TV. That, That must mean that what they're watching is worse than watching the world end. Like, and that really fucked me up. But as a little kid... I understood on some level. I, I even saw it as well. Scott, Storm, and Xavier. Because as a kid, I thought Wolverine was one of the kids because he oh, behaved like oh a kid. Lord. So even though he was an old man, I just he was one of the kids. Like my dad usually acted like a kid. So like to me, Wolverine was just one of the kids, right? <laughs> so in my mind, Storm, Scott, and Xavier—all the adults were out. It's like if the Ninja Turtles, if Leonardo, Splinter, and Donatello were out, obviously it's just Casey, Michelangelo, and Raphael. All hell's gonna break loose, right? Yeah. Okay. With all the parents gone, I could really see how they were so broken up by watching this broadcast. But that was a child's eyes. And it just happened to imprint on me. How did that feel for you guys? Did you get into that moment of the X-Men being broken by watching something? Or was it like, you know, for people who have literally faced down the Phoenix, they're really reacting to an infomercial.
12: <laughs> I like that. It felt very real and, and scary to me. So like I was raised Catholic, which was like more minor than some of the stuff that's going on today. But I mean, some of these televangelists, I mean, I mean, this is as no offense to anybody, they, they act like salesmen. Their words become powerful and they kind of intoxicate through these like these big mega churches and, and the broadcast and stuff they do. And so, I mean, to think about that, like when you're watching these people talk about why people should hate you and there's a little tiny part of your mind that's also simultaneously like wow he's right well no he's not like it, you know it, they like it messes with you just because of their their presence and they don't seem dangerous but what they say is dangerous and that I don't know that always messed with me um, and still does especially with everything going on so to have the X-Men even the younger X-Men like watch that and and feel that too I was like oh, that is so just real and made this story like hit a lot harder and I yeah.
0: think that's part of how the X-Men are so quick to align with Magneto later on because Magneto is also in that salesman selling pretty junk kind of category where, you know, but think of the power we can have, Charles. (laughs) And like, you know, he he goes right there, right away. How did you guys feel about that reaction of the X-Men watching television, such a human thing to do, and having that intense emotional re- resonance. This scene is referenced all the time.
11: This is one of the scenes in the book that really brought me into the book because, you know, first we had the intro and then Kate saying that and I was just like, okay, let me get through this book. Let me get through it. And then, then we had this scene and I was like, oh, I this is like this feels like X-Men book, you know, they're all together, they're all like sharing their thoughts with each other and it's all, you know, mutant and everything. But it's it definitely that's how I feel like it ages well in some ways in this way, because it's like today, like you can see, you know, attacks on the Capitol or like people talking about, you know, Black Lives Matter and stuff and saying that they're like this and that. And it's scary. You watch it on TV or watch it on Twitter or whatever you watch it on. And you're like, this is really happening, and I don't know what's going to happen after this. Like, no. this is something new and different that hasn't happened before, and I don't know how to react. So it, it was it was very, I loved seeing those kind of things in, in literature like that. Like, you can see, like, yourself in, in things like this. And I think that's what the X-Men are all about, is, like, you can see yourself no matter what kind of minority group you're in you can the
0: see humanizing them.
11: factor yeah the yeah. humanizing factor
7: for sure yeah i mean i saw my own friends and i like this this felt very much like watching a debate uh, on tv yeah where you're, you're starting to get that feeling that... And I mean, it didn't really resonate with me that like, oh my God, they're so shocked by this when they've watched the end of the world. It was more like the shocking realization that you've been putting your ass on the line for these people who are just so ready to turn against you and who don't understand why you're doing what you're doing and that you're just trying to live and you could just step back and stop trying to save them and then where would they be? Okay. So that's that's what I took away from it. That's sort of like feeling of why are we even doing this
0: now that that you know that moment that pivotal moment where you see that that humanizing factor i actually really understand why the x-men do what they do next which is run a danger room simulation however i um okay so i love monsieur claremont i do But this would have been five pages at the beginning of a normal issue that was a three-parter. And, you know, that moment where Xavier and Storm and Cyclops are assassinated sort of rolls right into that Danger Room sequence. It's this minor moment, you know, kind of between the the wasted two pages of the Danger Room sequence and that hit being this, like, minor moment. I felt in some ways, like, the prestige format, this this one-shot special edition, slightly out of canon, It kind of made it feel like I knew it wasn't going to matter. It kind of lost some gravitas in that way. Nathan, as someone who's read so much X-Men, right, how does that pacing and that sort of reality, how did the format affect your understanding and reality of the
7: story?
6: I, I think the biggest thing that made me really understand what he was trying to do with it is when I read the interview where he was trying to say, if you are going to read where he wrote it so that if you were going to read one story of X-Men in the next few years, around that time, that this one would have everything that you need in it. And yes, Danger Room is a big part of life. It was <laughs> <laughs> like Kate, Kate tried going like, hey, you know, it's time for me to just go hit something. That's like, so in her character, like how many times has she done it? And it's a part of reaction to what they just watched before because before they really couldn't, they had no control over it. And that's why they were so scared. Like with the supervillains, they know what they have to do. You know, they have to, like, wham, bam, fight the way out of everything. But it, with the societal issues of the purifier, they had no idea what to do. And that's when it's like, let's go hit something. Yeah. But
12: yeah, first I didn't think about it till I, I finished everything. Going back to what we were talking about the bonus stuff, when they showed Neil Adams's pages, like the six pages he did before he quit, that had a Danger Room sequence. That had the weird new beginning with Magneto, and then it transitioned right into the, so the, this Danger Room element is really important to God Loves Man Kills. It, 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 it is, it's got to be there for some reason. My only thing is, is, is I was wondering if maybe if it's a reminder that later on with Kate in the trunk of the like super advanced yeah. mutant catching mobile. If maybe that's why to remind us of like, they train for these weird instances all the time and they can escape things rather conveniently and easily. <laughs> it's maybe what I, and then, then later on we're like, Oh, that, that's how Kate got out of the car. This danger room training.
7: It's so interesting that you connected to that scene. Cause I connected to the to final battle at the end, the mm. idea of helping each other with your strengths to get out of things. You, with having Nightcrawler and Scott and Wolverine coming at Charles at the exact same time with different Mm -hmm. ways I think that that was the only reason why it would echo for me and I even think that that is a very tent like barely there thread connecting them so I don't know why it's there my
11: connection to it was I thought he was trying to show like obviously that they're training and that they're skilled fighters and all that yeah that's very X-Men Danger Room want to show that But my thing was, I thought he was trying to show how dangerous they were, basically, because you just got this like telegram news special about, you know, we should get away with the mutants, they're abominations, they're dangerous, they're going to destroy us. And then they're like, "Well, let's go destroy shit <laughs> in the danger room." And then the they have, like
0: turn it up to eleven, <laughs> right? <laughs>
11: and then they have the voiceover talking about how dangerous the mutants are and going after Storm and Charles and Scott while they're in a danger room. So they're showing, you know, all their mutant abilities and how dangerous they can be and destructive they can be. So it's like giving you a viewpoint, like, "Hey, this is why they think that because they have these destructive abilities."
6: what was up with that scoring though <laughs> oh, yeah the wait, scoring didn't wait. make sense at <laughs> like, all it's, it's ten of swords <laughs> oh, <exactly. laughs> that is. has that ever been in a comic before like, I don't, I don't remember it I don't think so <laughs> how Wolverine got like the highest score I don't know but <laughs> yeah I, I, it's in Canadian it was
12: locked in cage the whole time
6: you know? I know <laughs> I mean
7: he's the only one who actually did what he did he got out without punching his way out so
11: true true True. I mean, yeah. He had to use Nightcrawler, though.
0: (laughs) I mean, mean, who here hasn't used the X-Men's party bus? Well, The X-Men's party bus actually is a really sad vehicle to deliver the news to through that the X-Men are passed away. Now, I actually love that Kurt gives them the news that the X-Men have died because it gives him a chance to react. Because we get thorough reactions from a number of the other characters, but not Kurt. We get Kate and Ileana, which this is such an underutilization of Ileana, and this would never happen now. She would have a million panels where she's using magic every other fucking panel. There would be demons everywhere. Uh, there would be inexplicably Amazing Baby and Jeff the Land Shark in each arm. It even be a question, but beyond that. So I think the thing that kind of got my attention here was the X-Men are in such disbelief. They've been so broken. All of their leadership is gone. That's kind of the only reason that Magneto is able to pull off this coup, because it's a coup, basically. He's like, oh, my friend died. I'm going to take his job and his house and his kids. And like, it's a coup. True.
7: I think it's just mom coming back.
0: Oh, I love that read. (laughs) And that's them now. That's their love now. And I just, but do you guys, you know, this is a huge change. This is 1981 magneto is still like a child killer at this point this is not yeah. happy days for magneto how do you yeah. guys feel about magneto just being like hey guys i'm an
12: x-man now what's up check the helmet well i'm used to it unfortunately I'm, I'm to it. so he's been he's been a good guy for a while or you know like he's this isn't the first time i've seen him you know cross the line and be, not be a villain um and i think Tori said something like that too like she's we're used to these like newer manifestations of, of like this new and improved Magneto Magneto and he's in the white suit. And he can face travel. <laughs> <laughs> um, and and that was the bummer when you told me that this was the first time that that Magneto like worked with the X Men, which you know as we know now will continue to happen more and more down the road. But that was the only bummer of reading this late. Like I imagine, like that hit so hard. Like oh my, like one of the the main villain. This would be like Kingpin and Daredevil teaming up to save an orphanage. Like when.
0: Um, okay, I need that book. <laughs> to now, Tori, now, this is an amazing convocation of Daredevil fans. Me, Rod, and Tori are like super hardcore Daredevil stands. Tori has read more Daredevil than almost anybody I've ever met in my life. And it is amazing. So that is the best story I've ever had pitched in my life. Ever. And I think in a lot of ways, that's what makes... Magneto's torture sequence later on a little bit easier to 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 believe now I'm glad you mentioned it earlier. I'm sorry. But, uh, you know, I grew up watching a lot of American Gladiators. I did. I did. I did. I did. It's why I'm gay now. That and Sears catalogs. So yeah, okay, yeah. I uh, very much also loved Ultimate Tag. Everybody needs to watch it. It was so good. But, you know, every now and then there would be this kid and he would be like, I'm 17. Well, I guess they had to be 19 because you couldn't be underage. I'm 19 and I'm from Wisconsin and I weigh 146 pounds and I'm going to run past Gemini and Nitro. And I'm like... Okay. <laughs> how fucking stupid do you think i am i'm seven it's 10 a.m on a tuesday morning during the <laughs> summer i'm watching usa reruns of american gladiators and i know this kid isn't gonna fucking pull this off are you kidding me <laughs> that is how i feel about the oh our sensors indicate that kitty has gotten into the trunk oh my god yeah. with the that was gas.
7: yeah that was <sighs>
11: something else <laughs> I I I didn't know what to expect with that. I was like, "What is this? This this is supposed to be like in the '80s. Why is this car so high tech? How? What did they expect someone to get into the trunk before? And like,
7: like yeah, how did they
12: yeah, expect I, someone to get I, it in? Why do they have sensors in the trunk? Has this happened before? Like, at the, all. the Ninja Turtles can build a van in the sewer that can launch pizzas and and uh, manhole covers and use that to stop the shredder." Well, really see, scary, <laughs> can build a super kidnapping mobile, but <laughs> <That's what laughs> they a eat kidnapping pizza. mobile. They eat pizza and live in the sewer. That's what they
11: do. And Just... these people
7: kidnap kids. What do you want? <laughs> you know, I... they sure. detect meetings, yeah.
11: Okay, so like, that's, that's like true. their job. Like they they do they kidnap a lot of children. So I mean, I guess yeah, you're right.
7: <laughs> and I guess it's I guess it's partially a hint towards the fact that they built their own cerebro, that they have technology to yeah, to I'm find sure. these things, and also. To I guess knock them out with something that looks like should just murder them. Yeah. I don't. They use all the comic language and visuals that just says this person's gonna be dead at the end of this because the kids were. The kids were dead. Yeah. But now, like, they're just oh, it's they're they're fine.
11: It's fine. Like when they shot iliana I was like, wait, she doesn't die in let's go. I'm like, on? oh, she does
7: not time travel her shit out of
0: this. No, right?
11: I'm like I really thought, I was like, Ileana dies? I
7: was like, wait, wait, wait. I was like, okay, oh, we're up the floor now? I know, I was like,
11: hold on. <laughs> I'm done with this book. Too
0: many deaths. <laughs> now, someone who comes close to dying, but doesn't quite die. Now, this scene echoes a really specific mental image. And if you ever like do any homework on 90s, uh, 90s X-Men comics, you're always going to find that panel of Magneto with his hand out, like with the, the hand like, and Logan splayed with the adamantium coming out of his body. And there is a phenomenal fucking parallel between that Magneto-Logan thing and Magneto torturing the guy. Now, if Storm, Xavier, and Cyclops hadn't been taken off the board, it wouldn't have put Logan in a position to have to take an adult supervisory role. Logan taking a supervisory role leaves the wild card open for Magneto to come in. Logan would have never been permitted in Kitty's eyes or in Xavier's eyes to have committed that level of torture. But the fact that Magneto came in allowed them to raise the stakes and make the X-Men the torturers in this instance Of course, that does issue the metaphor, are the X-Men no better than their torturers, which is echoed by Kurt. I maybe know this isn't the the kindest shit to say, but I I kind of understand that they don't have a lot of choices. How do you guys feel? Blake, you know, this is a particularly dark X-Men story, and it was your first time reading it, and you've read so much X-Men. How do you feel about the... The X Men being like, "Nah, torture school. It's what we do."
12: It, it was it was different. Um, I did not expect it, which I think you bring up the excellent point, which is why Wolverine couldn't do it, even though Wolverine was psychologically torturing the one because he had the two claws popped around the guy's head and was waiting, you know, like you'll get the third one, and um, and then Magneto was like, "Hold my beer." <laughs> uh but i mean uh it it worked Uh, the art helped because it was like oddly like scary but the way it's drawn i feel weird calling a torture scene beautiful you'll probably never ask me to come back and do a show because i'm saying weird shit now i called (laughs) it the magical
0: race force story i think
7: you're (laughs) fine don't worry i have so many much more worse things to say where i'm just like yeah no this is normal
0: (laughs) bigotry elsewhere it was hysterical
12: yeah I, I mean because it was because it was magneto because there's so much at stake here the crazy preacher or you know strikers campaign mom dad and gene are gone or i guess she used to be mom sorry but the, the, well the, the Jean's three... pretty dead right yeah. now <laughs> <laughs> yeah uh storm <laughs> i read the book guys i swear <laughs>
7: it's okay (laughs) she's barely there we're having all these conversations about bigotry and we just sideline the major woman of color
12: in Uh, this story
11: yeah i mean she gets like two lines she does
12: get the cool lightning panel though the beautiful when she's
11: but the
0: person who gets to electrocute someone back to life panel is magneto because i forget all the time that (laughs) attracting and repelling things is explicitly the power of lightning
7: I did mean to ask you that. I was like, oh, can he do that? Well, I liked when you were yeah.
0: like, is anybody going to point out ferrous metals? Is anybody going to call out the fact that there are only three naturally occurring ferrous metals? All the other metals that exist in the world, not magnetic. Uh. And he's like,
7: I'm the master of magnetism. And I'm like, I, I mean, you could go for master of metalry. That's also. <laughs> and- yeah,
0: yeah, there you go and he just starts to make everybody Etsy jewelry. <laughs> oh my god. Oh my god. So how did you guys feel about Magneto's sudden role within the X-Men and his role as uh, you know, the X-Men's very own torturer?
11: So, him being a torturer fits. He's done it. I mean, he do- he's he does it after this. So, it's like we've seen it, but this is the first time. So, okay um first time seeing it oh shocking sure um but it's expected because he did he did kill children before but also also the x-men being okay with this i think is fine because magneto already said that these people that were here he found that they killed two mutant children they x-men already think that they killed storm cyclops and xavier so it's like they're like we, we they're killers they don't deserve you know To they, they're not going to kill them but like they don't deserve to you know not be tortured if they need to get information and try to find the people responsible for killing their friends bringing them justice like it is understandable
0: <laughs> uh, you can be on my quiet council anytime
7: <laughs> I agree I, I'm very I'm very shocked that people afterwards were like does that not make us worse as worse as them and I'm like you're in a war this is what what you do. Yeah. Like, I mean, do, do have you tortured before? No. Is it unusual to torture someone in front of a 15 year old? Yes. Yeah. But yeah. like times is hard. People are dead. You gotta go. Right
0: now you gotta fight to live and yeah. live to fight. That's all yeah. you got right now. Exactly. So,
6: like Exactly. So she's 15. Why did all the, Why are all these purifiers? Why are they like in their underwear underneath these robot suits? Like how many <laughs> of them do we, like how many of them do we see in like their underwear? Like three of them? Like. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It gets yeah. hot
11: under there have you
6: seen people have you seen furries all they do oh, is yeah. wear underwear under their suits it gets hot all but right? would it be like metal rubbing up against like everywhere
7: also i'm really glad you told me that there is a image very similar to the torture scene with wolverine because i could not figure out what these little spindly things coming out of his hand are it's very strange
0: <laughs> it's you know it's about the art of the panel i think more than it is about executing a a like a, a
7: Yeah, I I don't think they
0: had a draftsman on hand but I couldn't get there so I want to thank you guys so much for coming out to talk about the first issue of God Loves Man Kills the Extended Edition and guys I can't wait to come back and talk about the second issue hope you guys enjoyed thank you so much Bye.
5: bye